podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I have three parts for you today. In part one, I'll review our win over Bayern Munich in the Audi Football Summit, which is just a fancy way of describing a friendly sponsored by Audi. In part two, I'll cover the latest news, including how much we really paid for Victor Osimhen, the latest at Castel di Sangro, suing LCT Sai, and the Amazon sponsorship rumor. And in part three, I'll provide an update on our Primavera and Femenile squads, who both played their first friendly matches over the last week or so. So let's start with the friendly match against Bayern Munich on Saturday, played at the Allianz Arena in Munich. Surprisingly, we won 3-0 on goals from Victor Osman and Zinedine Mashash. I know a lot of people will look at this result and say it's just a friendly, don't read too much into it. And to an extent, they're right. If you look at Bayern's preseason schedule, they didn't win a single match. They lost 3-2 to FC Köln, then they drew Ajax 2-2, and after that they lost 2-0 to Borussia Mönchengladbach. Does that mean Bayern will not win a match all season? Of course not. Friendlies are not really about results, especially for these two clubs who both replaced their managers this summer. As you know, we replaced Gennaro Gattuso with Luciano Spalletti. Meanwhile, Bayern replaced Hansi Flick with Julian Nagelsmann. For these new managers, friendly matches are about testing what they've been working on in training. I'll talk about that from a Napoli perspective in just a moment. That being said, this result was nothing to scoff at either. Even if the motivations are different at this time of year, Bayern is still one of the best teams in the world. This was Bayern's final friendly before kicking off their season with their first round match of the DFB Cup. That's why Nagelsmann started so many of his regular starters. The only players he didn't have at his disposal were Manuel Neuer, Joshua Kimmich, and Thomas Müller. Yes, Nagelsmann turned over nearly his entire squad at the half, but even if we focus solely on the first half, we still held Bayern's best available 11 to a scoreless draw. That's pretty impressive considering we were missing more players than Bayern were. We were missing 5-6 to six starting players. We were also without our starting goalkeeper. In fact, we were without both of our top two keepers in Alex Meret and David Ospina. We didn't have our starting right back in Giovanni Di Lorenzo. Our starting double pivot in Fabian Ruiz and Diego Deme. Of course, Deme picked up that knee injury in our previous friendly against Provercelli. And we were missing at least one starting winger in Lorenzo Insigne, or possibly both starting wingers if you fancy Chucky Lozano the starter on the right. We also rested Andrea Petania for precautionary reasons as he had inflammation in his knee, and Sebastiano Luperto, Michael Foloruncho, and Amato Cicciretti, who are all close to being transferred to other clubs. Luperto is heavily linked to Empoli, and on Friday, Mario Lovisa, president of Serie B club Pordenone, confirmed that they will be taking Cicciretti and Foloruncho, though those deals are not official yet. The speculation is that Cicciretti will be sold while Foloruncho will be loaned. So with that, let's quickly run through the starting lineups. Bayern lined up in a very attack-minded 4-1-4-1 with Sven Ulrich starting over Neuer in goal. 
Deyu Upamecano and Tangi Nianzu started at centre-back. With Alfonso Davies hurt, Josip Stanisic started at left-back and Benjamin Pavard started at right-back. Leon Goretzka played immediately in front of the back line. Nagelsmann played all four of his wingers in front of Goretzka, Jamal Muziala, and Kingsley Coleman played on the left side. Coleman was forced to leave the match after only 10 minutes with yet another injury. He ran into Manolas and Koulibaly, and the early reports are that he bruised his ribs. So Eric and Maxim Choupo-Moting replaced him, which is not really a downgrade in quality. Serge Gnabry and Leroy Sané started on the right side of the midfield. And finally, Robert Lewandowski started as the lone striker. For Napoli, Spalletti lined up in a 4-2-3-1, at least on paper. Nikita Contini started in goal behind a centre-back pairing of Costas Manolas and Kaladu Koulibaly. Mario Rui started at left-back while we continue to search for a replacement for LCT Sai. And Kevin Malqui started at right-back. With a limited squad, Spalletti tried Elif Almas in the double pivot alongside Stanislav Lobotka. Surprisingly, Karim Zadatka started over Adam Unas on the left wing. The rest of the starters were not surprising at all. Matteo Politano started on the right wing, Piotr Zelensky played in the 10th spot, and Viktor Osman started at striker. Okay, so let's talk about the match. As I said earlier, friendlies are not about results, they are about applying what has been worked on in trading in a competitive environment. Even though this was a friendly, the match was definitely competitive. Bayern were playing aggressively, especially when they brought on their U23 squad in the second half. I'm all for competitive play, but there's a difference between playing aggressive and playing reckless. Now, I'm looking at this from the perspective of a Napoli fan, so I'm clearly biased, but I saw a number of tackles that I did not like. In the first half, Chupomoting stepped in front of Malqui just as he was about to play the pass, which I thought was a dangerous play to make. Fortunately, Malqui was able to continue after a bit of treatment with the magic spray. Then just before the break, we saw Muziala lunge into a tackle late and collide with Zielinski. Shortly after the restart, Zadadka was fouled late and hard by Bunasar. Then 10 minutes later, Jamie Lawrence and Victor Osman collided heads. Now, I don't think that was an intentionally dirty tackle, but it was certainly a reckless one. Osman was visibly upset, and I can understand why. Lawrence clearly had no chance to win that ball. Lawrence actually got the worst of it. Both were bleeding, but Lawrence had to be taken out of the match. Finally, I thought the play by Armindo Sieb on Mario Rui with about 10 minutes to play was a little bit dirty. I was fine with the initial foul, that happens all the time, but he continued to nudge Mario Rui while he was still down and after the whistle was blown. So like I said, even though it was a friendly, the Bayern players were definitely competing, especially the youngsters who had something to prove. Back to Spalletti and his influence on our players, there were a few things I saw in this match that were very positive. First, we saw things that the team has been working on in training implemented in a live match. One example of this is the set piece that we use on our goal kicks where the keeper tosses the ball to his center back who puts the ball into play with a pass back to the keeper. Then the holding midfielder drops to show for the keeper who plays the pass. Then with one touch, the midfielder plays the ball out wide to the fullback. In this match, it went like this. Contini tossed to Koulibaly, short pass back to Contini. He spots Lobotka dropping deep and Lobotka plays the one-touch pass to Mario Rui. For the most part, that worked quite well, and it's used in conjunction with something else we've been working on extensively in training, which is playing one-touch passes. We saw that during the match as well, but it's something that still needs a bit of work. When it came off, it looked great. Dare I say it looked like Sadi ball, but when it didn't work, we conceded possession in dangerous areas, like in the middle of our own half. So I suspect Spalletti will work with the players on what to do when the pass isn't available, because we can't force the pass and concede possession. 
Spalletti also showed versatility in how we approach matches. Between the three friendlies we've played so far, we've taken two very different approaches. Against much weaker opponents in Bassa Naunia and Provercelli, we dominated play and we were far more offensive and positive. Against Bayern, who I think it's safe to say is a stronger opponent, we were patient and quite content to sit back, defend, and wait for our opportunities. We saw in the second half, with a striker like Victor Osiman, we're more than capable on the counterattack, though I must say this isn't really new. We saw Gattuso do the exact same thing during his season and a half in charge. The fourth thing we saw from Spalletti was neither positive nor negative, but was another hint at what we might see this season. In the 74th minute, he replaced Kevin Malqui with Alessandro Zanoli, which was a like-for-like replacement, and then he replaced left-winger Karim Zadadka with left-back Filippo Costa. Then Mario Rui shifted into center-back to make a 5-3-2. Of course, the 5-3-2 is just the defensive version of the 3-5-2, with Zanoli and Costa playing as the wing-backs. We've seen glimpses of the three-man backline both in training and against Provercelli, so now I think we know why. If this match was any indication, Napoli are going to use the 3-5-2 late in matches to defend the lead. We were up 2-0 in this match when we changed formation, so I'm curious to see if and when we make this change during the season. Would we do it with a one-goal lead, and at what point in the match would we switch? That may not be the most attractive football to watch, but as long as it's effective, I'm fine with it. For it to be effective, it's not enough to simply put bodies behind the ball. We need to be disciplined, and we need to be organized at the back. So it's great that we won, but these are all things that would have been fascinating to watch, even if we didn't win. There's plenty of work to be done, we haven't perfected anything yet, but I must admit I'm really impressed with how Spalletti has this team playing, having been in charge for only a month. Another positive takeaway from this match was how well we defended. I was impressed with our entire backline, but let's start with the center backs. We all know how good Koulibaly is, but the partnership of Koulibaly and Manolas has come a long way since we signed Manolas in 2019. They've lacked chemistry in the past, which I think is largely due to the fact that both players have missed a lot of time in the last two seasons. They were certainly on the same page in this one, and each of them had standout individual performances as well. They were throwing their bodies in front of everything and came up with some important blocks. They also had a good read on the match, winning balls both in the air and on the ground. Besides the odd errant pass, Manolas and Koulibaly hardly made a wrong step. Surprisingly, I thought Mario Rui put in a strong performance as well. He was one of the players I had my eyes on, and I'm sure Spalletti did too. Rui was one of four Napoli players to play the full 90 minutes. Koulibaly, Lobotka, and Almas were the other three. He had a difficult matchup in the first half with Nabri and Sané on his side, but to his credit, Mario Rui held his own, and neither of those players did a whole lot. He also got forward and created a couple of chances both in the first half. First, he played a perfect cross to Osman, but Victor couldn't keep his header down. Then he made a great read to intercept a pass intended for Nabri, which led to a chance for Zielinski, but he missed the target. On the opposite side of the field, Kevin Malqui completed the back line. Malqui got the start on his 30th birthday. Even that surprised me. For some reason, I thought he was younger than 30. Malqui was very involved for the 73 minutes that he played. From a defensive standpoint, I thought he was very good. He completely shut down Chupomoting after he replaced Komen. Very little got past Malqui in our own end. However, I wasn't terribly impressed with his play in the attack. I mentioned that play where Chupomoting stepped in front of him. While I think that was a foul, Malqui simply took too long on the ball there and ultimately conceded possession. His passing lacked accuracy as well, so that's something he'll need to work on. 
If there's one thing you can't deny though, it's Malqui's work rate. There was one sequence late in the first half where he fought for the ball on the touchline and eventually came up with it. It seemed like he pushed the ball too far out wide, but not only did he save the ball, he also played an excellent cross to Elmas to create our first legitimate chance of the match. Malqui was eventually replaced by Zanoli who had started the previous friendly and also played very well, so it seems we have a legitimate competition for the backup right back position. If I had to guess, I would say Malqui is still slightly ahead. The last thing I want to talk about is standout players. I have four of them so I'll try to keep each one brief. Two of them are players that could well be on their way out. The first is goalkeeper Nikita Contini. He's heavily linked to Crotone in Serie B. I thought he had an excellent match. He made an excellent kick save on Muziala in the first half which was really the only time he was tested in the match. But he was brave coming off his line. He looked confident coming off his line. He's very calm on the ball and he executed our set piece as well. He even started the play that led to the third goal with a long ball for Gennaro Tutino. So I was very pleased with this performance from Contini. It seems like he's on his way out, but I'd be perfectly fine selling Davido Spina and keeping Contini as the backup. The other is Adam Munas, who's linked to multiple clubs including Torino, Venezia, Verona and Monza. The fact that we started Zadadka suggests to me that it's only a matter of time before Unas is sold and we want to use this time to assess whether Zadadka could be a suitable backup. I know people don't want to hear that, but we have an abundance of talent on the wing. If we want to upgrade at left back, we need to sell guys like Tutino and Unas. Unas played only about 20 minutes, but it was some 20 minutes. He got into the action immediately after coming on, pouncing on a poor touch by Malik Tillman and playing Osman through, but Osman pulled his shot wide. Five minutes later, Unas did it again, this time winning the ball off of Michael Cuisance, and this time Osman made no mistake. A minute later, he picked up his second assist after another Cuisance mistake led to another Napoli counterattack. Gianluca Gaetano, who had just replaced Zielinski, immediately sprung Unas. He carried to the edge of the area before playing Osman on the overlap, and once again Osman picked his corner. Unfortunately, Unas had to be taken out after suffering a painful tackle by Chris Richards. Richards was even cautioned for that tackle, which is something you don't see often in friendlies. In fact, Unas was on the receiving end of another tough foul only a couple minutes prior. The official diagnosis was a blunt trauma to the right ankle. In other words, he has a bruised ankle, which is not a serious injury. Unas himself confirmed that it's not serious on social media after thanking fans for their messages. I mentioned Osman's two goals both started with mistakes by Bayern players, which should be a warning sign for opponents. You do not want to make errors in your own half because this man is lethal on the counter. Both goals were well taken. On the first, he took three touches before shooting. He controlled with his left, shifted the ball from his left to his right, took one touch to set up the shot on his right, and then fired low and hard to the far post. I don't think you can fault Ehrlich on the play, but if you watch the replay from behind the goal, he didn't exactly pick the corner, so I do wonder if Neuer would have kept that one out. I also think Neuer might have done better on the Zinedine Mashash goal, but even Neuer would not have stopped Osman's second. That goal was all about his movement and the finish. He saw Unas on the ball and he overlapped to his right, then hit the shot first time, tucking it just inside the far post. What really impressed me though was that Osman persevered in a match that could have easily been very frustrating for him. He got almost no service in the first half with Bayern's first team dominating the play, then when he did finally get some service, he didn't make the most of it. He missed the header on Mario Ruiz cross and he missed that other chance created by Unas about 10 minutes before the first goal. 
He also scored after taking that knock to the back of his head, which Osman was really upset about. So it was great to see that despite all of that, he was able to keep his cool and eventually converted his chances. The last player I will mention is Stanislav Lobotka. He's another player I had my eyes on. With Demme injured, I wanted to see how Lobotka would play in that holding midfielder role against strong opposition, and I was quite happy with what I saw. As I said, he played the full 90 minutes and he was involved throughout. I doubt he would have been capable of playing the full 90 had he not dropped weight. He was calm on the ball, which is what you need from that position. He was integral to the buildup from deep, and he was playing the one-touch passes that we want to play. There was one play in the first half where we played the ball to Lobotka from a goal kick. He dribbled away from the press, then played a quick give-and-go with Malqui, and that completely opened up the midfield. So very positive signs from Lobotka. I think if he keeps this up, he could definitely be the starting CDM until Demme returns. We do still need to sign another player to replace Bakayoko and to spell Lobotka occasionally so he's not overworked, but we don't necessarily need to spend big money on that player. So that will do for this match review. In part two, we'll cover the latest news. There have been a number of stories in the news over the last week or so, but let's start with the one that posted on Monday and got a lot of attention on social media. I'm referring to the Victor Osimhen transaction with Lille, which is back in the news. You might recall that in June, L'Equipe reported that Lille were under investigation for this deal. At the time, it seemed that Lille's accounting was under investigation and not Napoli's, but now there are suspicions about both clubs. That's because Lille have now released all three of the youth players that went over to France as part of the deal. Just as a reminder, the total price we paid for Osimhen was 80 million euros comprised of 50 million euros in cash, 20 million euros for backup keeper Arrestes Carnetsis, and three Primavera players Claudio Manzi, Ciro Palmieri, and Luigi Liguori, and up to 10 million euros in bonuses. Gold.com and subsequently Football Italia published articles arguing that Napoli actually paid half of the reported transfer fee. Now, I saw quite a few Napoli fans celebrating that we only paid 40 million euros for Osimhen and how wily De Laurentiis is. I don't think he pulled a quick one on Lille here, but I'll come back to that in just a second. That wasn't the main point of the article. Goal and Football Italia and others who picked up the story were suggesting that there was suspicious activity here. So let me explain why these sites feel that we paid half the price, and then I'll highlight the flaws in their arguments. Carnetsis barely played as the backup to Mike Magnon last season. He made only one appearance and it was in the French Cup. All three Primavera players were loaned to Fermana in Serici last season. Liguori was also loaned to Lecco and all three have reportedly been released by the club. Liguori has since joined Afragoleza in Serie D. Manzi is now with Turis in Serici and Palmieri is without a club. 
Now, according to those articles, these four players were valued at up to 30 million euros. So between the players and the unpaid bonuses, we actually only paid 40 million for Osimhen. I think that's a very misleading representation of the transfer. First of all, the 10 million in bonuses was likely not activated because Osimhen missed so many games due to injury. That has nothing to do with those players or shady accounting. And trust me, we would have gladly paid the 10 million euros to have a healthy Victor Osimhen all season. Because if we did, we probably would have qualified for the Champions League and made a lot more than 10 million euros in doing so. Second, I responded to Football Italia's tweet about this and where they came up with the up to 30 million part because the reports at the time were that the players were valued at 20 million. Their response was that these figures were always rather vague and that the value of the players was somewhere between 20 and 30 million euros. So their report of up to 30 million, in my opinion, was an exaggeration to make their point. They went to the highest extreme on that 20 to 30 million euro spectrum. They could just as well have said at least 20 million, but that wouldn't quite have the same effect. For all we know, those players could have even been valued at only 10 million. I haven't seen Lille's books, and I'm certain that these sites haven't either. Third, this article is backward looking. It's easy to say that these players have no value a year after the transfer with the benefit of hindsight, with the benefit of knowing that they've all been released. At the time of the transfer, Lille might have seen something in these players. The fact that three Primavera players were immediately loaned out does not imply much. Even for a club in the League of Talents, it's very common for clubs to purchase young players and loan them out so they can get experience and playing time instead of sitting them on the bench all season. That said, there's no doubt that those players were overvalued. Maybe Carnetsis was worth 5 million euros, but there's no way the three Primavera players were worth 5 million euros each. It's not like we have a strong Primavera team that pumps out talent after talent. Manzi and Palmieri were even part of the Primavera team that was relegated to Primavera Due. So I think it's fair to say that we inflated those players' values and that Lille inflated Osimhen's value by the same amount. That doesn't mean we ripped Lille off. If you assume the four players were actually worth a total of 5 million euros, which is what I think they're worth, what it means is the real price that the clubs agreed on is 65 million. 50 million in cash, 5 million in players, and up to 10 million in bonuses. Looking back, we might still say that Osimhen was a steal even at that price, but we also have the benefit of hindsight too. At the time of the purchase, a lot of people, including Napoli fans, were saying we overpaid for an unproven player, and my response at the time was that we did not because we didn't pay 80 million in cash, which is exactly what these articles are about. The last thing I'll say on this subject is that these shady accounting swaps are fairly common practice in Europe. I'm not saying it's right, in fact I wholeheartedly disagree with them, but if other clubs can do it, then I don't blame Napoli for doing it too. Other clubs, especially the club who won the league 9 times over the last 10 seasons, do this more often and on a grander scale. Just think of the Juve Barcelona swap of Miralem Pjanic for Artur. Both of those clubs recorded the sale at 60 million euros, which we all know those two players are not worth. If you're concerned about what this could mean for the club, I wouldn't be too worried. These claims are very difficult to prove, unless there are documented conversations about inflating player values, which I highly doubt. It's next to impossible to prove. Moving on, we now have more information on the retreat at Castel di Sangro, which commences on the 5th of August and ends on the 15th. The mayor of Castel di Sangro, Angelo Caruso, spoke to Radio Marte, where he confirmed that Napoli will play two friendlies while at the retreat. There was some speculation that one of the matches would be against L'Aquila, as was the case last season. Caruso denied that report. Instead, he confirmed that the first match would be against Ascoli, 
on August 8th or 9th, and the second should be against Perugia on August 14th. Both Ascoli and Perugia play in Serie B, which is great. We don't need to be playing Serie D clubs at this point in the summer. Caruso added that he thinks they can fit 2,000 fans in the 7,000-seat stadium while still respecting COVID protocols, so that would be a larger crowd than we saw at Di Mauro. Fabian Ruiz and David Ospina rejoined the club at Castel di Sangro on Monday, and Alex Meret, Giovanni Di Lorenzo, and Lorenzo Insigne joined on Tuesday. In other news, Il Matino are reporting that Napoli is taking Elsid Hisai to court for unpaid fines associated with the mutiny during the 2019-20 campaign. This is a bizarre move from the club, or perhaps I should say from De Laurentiis, who we know is behind this. He's been silent on the matter for a while now. Hisai is not the first player to leave the club since the mutiny. Alain went to Everton and Arkadouche Milik went to Marseille, and neither were given the same notice. Now, both of those players were sold, so I suspect in those cases the purchase fees included payment for the fines, or at least there's some fine print in there. The fines are very small compared to those fees, so you wouldn't really notice them. That's the other strange thing about this story. According to the article, Hisai owes the club 65,000 euros, which doesn't seem worth the effort to pursue in court, unless, of course, De Laurentiis plans to pursue this with the rest of the squad. I wouldn't put that past him given his general nature and given the financial situation of the club. If he wins this case, that would set a precedent to go after the other players. For argument's sake, if 20 players paid a fine of 65,000 euros, the club would collect 1.3 million euros in fees, which is not insignificant. The courts will appoint an arbitrator, so even if they settled on a lower amount, say half of the fine, the club could potentially take in 650,000 euros from the players. My biggest concern is what this would do for the team morale, and is it really worth it to chase this money, potentially at the expense of results? Moving on, we have more information on the kits. Besides the picture that was taken at the Pro Vercelli match of what appeared to be the new kit lying on the grass, we still don't know what the new kits will look like. The reports are that we'll have three colors, blue, white, and red. According to Atutella della Malia di Napoli, Letta will be in white on the red kit only, which for me is also confirmation that there will be a red kit. Tutelamalia is also reporting that the new kit will cost 125 euros, which I think is reasonable. I was concerned about the price given our partnership with Armani and that we are self-producing the kits. But the big story about the kits came on Saturday. A host of media were reporting that Napoli had reached an agreement with Amazon to be the fourth kit sponsor and that the Amazon logo would be worn on the arms of the shirt. I'm not sure who broke that story, but everyone jumped on it. The story spread so quickly that the club issued an official statement denying the report. The statement said the club denies the news published in several newspapers that it has signed an agreement with Amazon as the fourth jersey sponsor. With Amazon, Caltronopoli is negotiating as usual the sales relationship produced on their stores. Finally, on a more fun note, Lorenzo Insigne's goal against Belgium in the Euros, Il Tiragir, was named the runner-up for UEFA's Goal of the Season award. This is a bit of an odd award, it includes any goals from UEFA club or international competitions. The winner of the award was Mehdi Taremi's bicycle kick goal in the quarterfinals of the Champions League against Chelsea. That will do for part 2. In part 3, we'll check in on the Primavera and the Femminile. Saga put this a fall, Italy, I know. 
final part I'll provide a quick update on our Primavera and Feminile teams who both played in their first friendlies of the 21-22 campaign over the past week or so. Let's start with the Primavera who were in action on Wednesday the 28th of July. This was Nicolo Frustalupi's first match in charge since taking over for Emmanuel Cachona as manager. Apparently that position was nearly given to former Napoli defender Salvatore Aronica. He told Radio Punto Nuovo on Monday that the club called him about the position then they chose Frustalupi and he doesn't know why. Unfortunately, Frustalupi lost 3-0 to Serie Chi Club Avellino, which I have to admit I wasn't too disappointed about considering my father is from Avellino. Losing to a Primavera side would not be a good look for a club aspiring to play in Serie B. Frustalupi fielded a mix of U17 and U19 players. Most, if not all, of those U19 players will make the Primavera's final starting eleven. Napoli lined up in a 3-5-2 with Ciro Pinto in goal. He started with Huberi Dasiak still at Di Mauro. He would be replaced by Vincenzo Provitolo in the second half. Benedetto Barba, Daniel Hisai, and Davide Costanzo lined up as the back three. Hisai is only 17 years old. All three of them were replaced as well. Youngsters Francesco Rossi, Pasquale Pontillo, and Dylan De Pasquale replaced Barba, Hisai, and Costanzo respectively. Antonio Vergara, Gennaro Iaccarino, and Alessandro Spavone started in the center of the midfield. Vergara and Iaccarino are first-team Primavera players, while Spavone is only 17. They were replaced by Giuseppe D'Agostino, Manuel Di Palma, and Raffaele D'Angelo. Di Palma is only 17 years old, and he played only 24 minutes before being replaced by another 17-year-old in Massimo Flora. Meanwhile, D'Angelo just joined the Primavera this summer, so he got his first action for Napoli. Domenico Di Donna and Davide Acampa were the wingers. They were replaced in the second half by 17-year-old Francesco Gioielli and 16-year-old Enrico Giannini. Finally, we had more experience up top with Giuseppe Ambrosino and Antonio Cioffi starting as the dual strikers. Ambrosino is still only 17 years old, but he played the entire 2020-21 campaign with the Primavera. They were replaced in the second half by Pasquale Maranzino and Antonio Pesce. Despite the loss, and despite the fact that Avellino probably should have scored a few more, I thought the Azzurini fared quite well. Considering how young this squad was, they held their own, and they still managed to create a few chances, so I think this was a good experience for them. I'll close with the Femminile. Our summer retreat at Rivizondoli is officially underway. It commenced on Friday, July 30th, and will last two weeks, ending on August 13th. Prior to the retreat commencing, general manager Nicola Crisano addressed the fans via a video posted on the club's official website. 
He said, we have set up a team that we hope will amaze a mix of young female players of perspective and elements of experience. We have given life to a revolution both in the group and in the staff. We hope to be able to feel the warmth of our audience in the stands this year to let the girls taste the emotion of Napoli. We brought 24 players to the retreat and as Crisano pointed out, most of them are new. The goalkeepers are Yolanda Aguirre and Kelly Cavaro. The defenders are Sedia Bramson, Maria Wona, Ilaria Capitanelli, Hedden Corrado, Paula Di Marino, Emily Garnier, Martina Tognolo, and Francesca Zavareze. The midfielders are Carminia Botta, Sofia Colombo, Benedetto De Biasi, Eleonora Goldoni, Francesco Imprezzabile, Sara Tui, and Emma Severini. And the forwards are Ariana Acuti, Depi Chatsi Nicolao, Kaya Ertsen, Denise Ferrara, Aurora Penna, Evi Popadinova, and Maddalena Porcarelli. There are four names there that we haven't discussed, Zavareze, Botta, Ferrara, and Penna. They are all Napoli Femminile Primavera players. Shortly after the Rivizondoli squad was released, the club announced the signing of midfielder Jimena Blanco. Blanco represented Argentina in the 2008 Olympics, then she played futsal in Italy from 2009 to 2015, winning four championships. Last season, she went back to playing 11 aside for Las Pumas in Argentina, where she won the Copa de Oro. Blanco scored a brace in the cup final, leading Pumas to a 4-0 victory over Gimnasia y Esgrima La Plata. Blanco returned to Italy on Saturday and joined the squad at Rivizondoli after their friendly match against Roma on Sunday. Unfortunately, we lost the match 1-0, but considering we've rebuilt the entire squad and considering we've only been in training for a week, this was not a terrible result against a strong Roma side. This was Alessandro Pistolesi's first chance to test his new players, who he lined up in a 4-3-3. Aguirre started in goal behind Garnier and Awona at centre-back. Abramson and Imprezzabile started at left and right-back, respectively. Sara Tui started as the regista with Colombo to her right and Goldoni to her left. Goldoni wore the captain's armband. Akuti started on the left wing, Ertsen started on the right wing, and Popedinova played at striker. That was the starting 11, but given the short preparation, Pistolesi made sure to rotate just about his entire squad. For Roma, new signing Benedetta Gliona scored the lone goal of the match in the 21st minute. Alison Swabi played a long ball over the top for Gliona. Aguirre came off her line thinking she could get to the ball first, but she completely misread the flight of the ball. It didn't help that it was extremely windy at Rivizondoli, so maybe without the wind, she would have gotten there. Instead, Aguirre was left in no man's land, and Gliona calmly chipped over the keeper to give the Jalorosi the lead. Aguirre atoned for her mistake only a few minutes later, though. After a lovely buildup, Gliona got behind our backline, but somehow Aguirre made the save from only a few feet from goal. In the end, Aguirre actually had a solid match, and you couldn't really blame her for the result. We created next to nothing in the attack, which is also understandable. With so many new players, it will take some time for them to develop chemistry. Pistolesi confirmed that after the match. He said it wasn't easy to deal with such an opponent after so few days of work. We didn't figure it out and we started to see something interesting. Foreigners are stepping in and giving a contribution of experience to our many young people. In front of us today we were missing Akuti and we are recovering Depi so we will soon have another offensive impact. So that will do for this review and that will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5 star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fort Pod. 
I'll be back with another episode later in the week to review our match against Wiesla Krakow. But until next time, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Network.